Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to also, also to those of you who are tuning in online via our YouTube channel or on our podcast. My name is Mark. I serve as one of the pastors here. And we have a team teaching model here at Fellowship Nashville. And for those of you who are here in person last week, you got to meet our new teaching and discipleship pastor, Ryan Dowdy. He and his two boys just moved here from Seattle and are getting settled. And we're so very thankful for God's provision for our church through Ryan. And uh, we're excited because he's starting this week. Tomorrow will be his first day. And uh, next week, he is going to be up here teaching, uh, starting a new sermon series for us. And I'd like, before we finish out Second Peter today, I'd like to whet your appetite for what's coming next. I'll give you a hint. It's the only book of the Bible that comes with a stated blessing for reading it and applying it. Somebody know what that is? Let me read that blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what's written in it, for the time is near. Any guesses? Shout it out. I heard it. Yes, Revelation. The book of Revelation. All the way at the end of your Bible, the last book in the Bible. Uh, We won't be covering the entire book in our new sermon series, but we will look at the first three chapters where we find seven letters to seven first-century churches. I'm really looking forward to diving into that together as a church family. But today we get to finish up our sermon series, the book of 2 Peter. So open up your Bibles or your Bible apps to the book of 2 Peter, the last chapter today, chapter 3. If you tuned in last week or were here, we looked at chapter 2 of this book. And you know that uh, Peter has just finished lambasting false teachers. He goes on an impressive tirade against them, calling them blots and blemishes, all kinds of names, blots and blemishes, basically pimples on the face of life, okay? He calls them dogs that return to their vomit, pigs that wallow in the mud. And he does not pull any punches. And you can tell he's kind of a salty, rough around the edges, blue collar, first century fisherman, because he was. He doesn't candy coat his condemnation of them. You could, he, he, as you read chapter 2, you can imagine he's just red in the face with righteous anger. And his anger is justified because these false teachers pose the biggest threat to the fledgling faith of his audience. That he's called to instruct and protect as an apostle of Jesus Christ. But Peter's tone changes drastically when we flip the page from chapter 2 to chapter 3. It changes so much that some have proposed that it's a new letter, that, that he's finished his, his, what was a, one letter and started a new one. Um, it kind of gives you whiplash, the tone change. But a better explanation is that Peter's just simply calming down <laughs> And moving his main focus away from the false teachers and turning his attention back to what he wants his beloved audience, original audience, and us to hear before he passes away. Remember, as we studied chapter one, Peter predicted that his his death was near, had been revealed to him um, in a a prophecy. He knew from God that he was going to pass away soon. And so these are his last words. And he doesn't want to be remembered, his last words, as, as an um, impressive tirade against false teachers. No, he, he wants to change the tone and remind his original audience and us that we're loved. 
as he says goodbye for the last time. You know, when we dropped, Meredith and I dropped our daughter Ellie, our eldest daughter, off at college and said goodbye, the last thing I said to her was not, you know, watch out for those bad professors who are pompous and arrogant and have the moral backbone of a chocolate eclair. Now, that's not what I said. No, I took her in my arms, I held her tightly, and I said in your ear, I love you. I affirmed verbally my heartfelt affection for her. Similarly, similarly, that's a hard word to say. Peter has a message along those lines for us here in chapter three. And it goes something like this. Here's our outline today. One, you are loved. Two, any guesses? You are loved. Three, you are loved. And four, you are loved. That's going to be our outline today. And when studying scripture, repetition is important to observe. And four times in this chapter, Peter calls us beloved, loved ones. Beloved, verse 1. Beloved, verse 8. Beloved, verse 14. Beloved, verse 17. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. And we are loved not just by Peter, but by God himself, who is moving Peter along by his spirit as he wrote. And so as we read and study today, my pastoral prayer is that you will hear an echo of the words of God our Father in the words of Peter. That you will hear an echo of what God the Father said to God the Son, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Likewise, you are my beloved sons and daughters in whom I am well pleased. That's a message we need to hear, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. The world is coming to end and everything's going to burn, Peter will say in this chapter, but you are loved. And that's our outline, the fourfold outline, as we go through our passage today. So we'll be looking for that phrase or that word, beloved, because each of them is going to form a point for our message. Let's dive in with verse one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you. What does it say? Beloved. There's the first one. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Peter starts the chapter by pointing out that, this, that in his second letter, that this is his second letter, and his previous letter is likely the one we now call First Peter, but in both of them, he has the same purpose of stirring us up by way of reminder. Why? Because reminders are important. You know, I spent about $1,000 on my iPhone. Now it's an iPhone 10, so it's not worth nearly that much now. But I've probably only used about $100 worth of what it's capable of doing. But one of the things I do use it for is reminders. I have it set up to ding and buzz at me when, when I'm supposed to be somewhere or do something. Why? Because I'm very forgetful and I need regular reminders to be a functioning member of society. I'm glad my iPhone does that for me. And Peter knows that we tend to be spiritually forgetful as well. So he wants to remind us of two things. So let's look at verse 2 and see what he wants us to remind us about. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So what are the two things he wants us to remember? You can say it out loud. The predictions of the prophets and what? The commandment of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what's coming next? The predictions and the commandment of Jesus through the apostles. In other words, how to live in light 
of those predictions, how to live in light of what's coming. And then in verse 3, Peter proceeds to talk about what's coming next. Let's read this together, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, because that's what scoffers do, following in their own sinful desires. We shouldn't be surprised when people scoff at us for our faith in Jesus. What do you mean Jesus rose from the dead? That's scientifically impossible. Come on. You believe that an intelligent being created all the intricacies of life that we see all around us? How absurd. Everyone knows that this is just a big cosmic accident that evolved by random chance through natural selection over billions and billions of years. Creation, intelligent design, how stupid can you be? Scoffers will often have an anti-supernatural bias and an intellectual objection to faith. But Peter points out here that that intellectual objection is just our fruit of a deeper root. What does he say in this verse? They are following what? Their own sinful desires. At the root of scoffing is much more than an intellectual objection. It's a moral objection. It's not that they just don't believe in God. It's that they don't want to believe in God. They'd much rather follow their own sinful desires. You see, if there is a God then you're accountable to that God. But if there is no God, you can be your own God and live however you want to live, right? Here's a refreshingly honest and telling quote from an atheist philosophy professor named Thomas Nagel. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. is isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. Get this. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Scoffers are going to scoff because deep down, they don't want there to be a God. Verse 4. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, how long has it been since Jesus left? Wake up, smell the coffee. He ain't coming back. God's not going to bring judgment. Come on, lighten up, get a life. Verse 5. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Reference to the Noah's flood. I would imagine that Noah's neighbors scoffed at Noah while he built the ark. You know, they'd never seen a flood before. It hadn't rained yet. The the earth was watered by springs and a mist, a, a canopy mist of some sort. And here's a guy building a boat. Not just a boat, but a big boat. Can you imagine being one of Noah's neighbors? I mean, this guy is one fry short of a happy meal. I mean, he's out to lunch. This guy is not the sharpest knife in the drawer. What on earth is he doing using all that lumber for this weird contraption? And they likely scoffed at him because they had never seen a flood and they'd never seen God's judgment. They dis- and because of that, they discounted that it could actually happen. And so they went about their daily routines, making fun of Noah, until it started to rain. It's the same with scoffers today, but Peter wants to remind us of the prophecies 
of what's coming next. What comes next in world history? As you look at the overarching plan of God, what's coming next? Well, let's read verse 7. By the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Has that come yet? Not yet, but it is coming. God isn't going to be patient forever. A fiery judgment is coming, Peter says, and it's not going to go well for the scoffers who persist in their scoffing and don't turn to Jesus. I said earlier that Peter's four beloved or you are loved declarations will form the four-part outline of our sermon today. And so if you're taking notes, here's the first point. Say this out loud with me as soon as it comes on the screen. There it is. You are loved. So remember, say that. You are loved. So remember. And what do we need to remember? Well, two things. Scoffers are going to scoff and the world's going to end. Scoffers are going to scoff and the world is going to end anyway. And then in verse 8, we find Peter's second, you are loved declaration. Let's read this together. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Well, the scoffers are scoffing, going, where is this Jesus? Where is this coming he talked about? This second coming. We must never forget that God's perception of time is not our perception of time. In God's time zone, it's been like two days since Jesus stepped back into heaven. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? What's the reason for God waiting to bring his judgment? Because God is patient with us and restraining his judgment to give more people the opportunity to repent and turn to Jesus. Or as the Apostle Paul put it in Romans chapter 11, God is waiting until the fullness of the Gentiles are brought in. Aren't you glad, if you're a believer this morning, aren't you glad that God has restrained his judgment for 2,000 years so far so that you and I could be brought in, could be included into the family of God? So that we could be brought in and included in the kingdom of God and enjoy a restored relationship with him forever on a recreated earth where everything will be made new. God's patience means salvation. But hear this. God's patience has a limit. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Man, those are ominous words, if you pause and reread them. Very, very ominous words. A thief doesn't announce his arrival. He doesn't call and say, hey, uh, is this the Irving residence? Yeah, I yeah, just wanted you to know I'm planning on you know, breaking in and robbing you tonight. Oh, well, thank you very much. You know, no, that's not how it works. How does a thief come? A thief comes unexpectedly. A thief comes unannounced. A thief comes without warning. And so will the day of the Lord or the day of God's judgment. It's just another way of saying the day of God's judgment. 
So being reminded of this as beloved children, what should we do? I'm glad you asked. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for the hastening of the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Here's point number two in our outline from Peter's last words this morning. You are loved, so wait. You are loved, so wait. Say that out loud with me. You are loved, so wait. Keep in mind that Peter has just told us that the world is going to end in fiery judgment at any moment. So telling us to calmly wait for it seems rather unexpected, doesn't it? Remember when people thought that the world was going to end Y2K, year 2000? All college students are like looking at me with blank stares. You weren't born yet. That's okay. But those of you over 30, do you remember when everybody thought that the world was going to end in the year 2000, some glitch in computers and planes are going to crash and everything's going to burn? And then there were the preppers. Remember the preppers? They hoarded grain and canned goods and drinking water. It was, it was Campbell Soup's best financial year ever, okay, 1999. And they hoarded fuel and gold and munitions. Some even built bunkers in their backyards. I mean, it was nuts, absolutely nuts. Quick, quick aside story, Meredith and I got married right after that in the spring of, of 2000, so I could remember when our anniversary is. Um, we've been married 22 years. So um, anyhow... Um, where was it going with? Oh, yes. We, our church, in the wake of Y2K, held a little shower for us, but they called it a pounding. Now, it's not what you think, okay? It's, you don't, I've never heard of a pounding here in Tennessee, but I guess in the Pacific Northwest where we were living at the time, it's a thing. It's a thing. Um, you get a young couple together who's just gotten married, and you pound them. In other words, you give them a pound of sugar, a pound of flour. You, you stock their pantry with a pound of stuff, of essentials for cooking and things like that. Maybe we should start that here. Start pounding newlyweds. Um, Well, anyway, in the wake of Y2K and preppers and everybody realizing that the world is not going to end, I mean, our pounding was epic. (laughs) We got, like, literally a five-gallon bucket of pickles. I mean, what are you going to do with that? Anyway, um, it was an interesting start to marriage. I don't think we ever finished those and end up throwing them away. But Peter's just told us that the world is going to end at any minute. So what would you expect him to say? Panic, flee for your lives, hunker down, embrace for impact, hoard water, food, gas, be self-sufficient, self-reliant, huddle your family close, lock the doors tight, conserve your resources, safeguard what's yours. But is that what Peter says? No. He simply says to patiently calmly, even expectantly, wait for it. Just wait. Just wait. Calmly, peacefully. It gets a little British on us here. Keep calm and carry on. Keep calm and carry on. Your love. So just wait. Don't panic. Just wait for it. And then in verse 14, we find Peter's third pronouncement that we are loved. Let's read this together. Therefore, beloved, there it is again, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and at peace. Don't panic. Be at peace. 
And while you are peacefully waiting for the end of the world, God's fiery judgment, as beloved children of God, be diligent to be found without spot or blemish. Remember, he's just called in the previous chapter of false teachers, what? Spots and blemishes. Pimples on the face of life. And and he's saying, don't be like that. Be diligent to be found without spot and blemish. In other words, don't pursue your own happiness. Don't pursue the desires of the sinful nature. Instead, instead of pursuing happiness, pursue holiness. You are loved, so remember. You are loved, so wait. And say this one out loud with me. You are loved, so be diligent. Be diligent about what? Be diligent to pursue holiness so that your character matches the character of Jesus. So that your posture in the world matches the posture of Jesus, a servant, a humble servant. So that when people look at you, they will see a reflection of your Savior and say, aha, that's what Jesus looks like. Hey, can you introduce me to him? You are loved, so be diligent. Don't, don't focus, you know, there's that bumper sticker, he who tie, dies with the most toys wins. No, don't, don't focus on building your portfolios. Focus on building your character. Pursue holiness rather than happiness. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to have nice things. But accumulating stuff and having nice things must not become your primary focus in life. Why not? Well, because Peter says it's all kindling. (laughs) It's all going to burn. The fires of God's judgment are not going to distinguish between a Ferrari and a Ford Focus. It's all going to burn. Yeah, the Ferrari might burn a little brighter because of the thicker tires and nicer paint job, but it's all going to burn. You're loved. So be diligent to make your main focus building character while you patiently wait for the end of the world. Build character so that your life becomes a reflection of your Savior. And people will go, aha, that's what Jesus is like. Be drawn to him and salvation is extended. Verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Now, quick time out here. Peter has just thrown some shade at his fellow apostle Paul, and I find it rather ironic. Peter's calling the apostle Paul's writings difficult to understand. And he's right. Paul is a little bit difficult to understand in places, but what I find rather funny is that Peter isn't any better. Um, if you've been with us in our, our sermon series through First of Peter and now Second Peter, you've, you've, uh, we've come across a few head scratchers around what Peter means, particularly in First Peter. But besides irony here, I also want to point out um, something that Peter says. He says the other scriptures and equates those other scriptures with the writings of Paul. 
But what were those other scriptures? Keep in mind that, that Peter penned this letter before the New Testament was collected and assembled. And so he must be meaning the Old Testament. Paul, or Peter is putting the writings of Paul and the apostles on equal footing with the Old Testament scriptures, equal authority. The, the writings of the apostles are just as authoritative. They are just as much God's word as the Old Testament. And they can be trusted as direct revelation from God himself. They're the word of God. Okay, back to the text. Here in verse 16, Peter must still be cooling off a little bit uh, from his tirade against false teachers in the last chapter. And he can't keep himself from taking one more jab at them. Um, there are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable, false teachers, twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. And this brings us to verse 17, where we find Peter's fourth and final, you are loved, declaration. Verse 17, you therefore, beloved, fourth time. Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Say these four things with me. You are loved, so remember. You are loved, so wait. You are loved, so be diligent. And finally, you are loved, so grow. Remember, scoffers are going to scoff, but the world's still going to end. Wait, keep calm, carry on. Be diligent to pursue godly character and, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If that phrase, the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, sounds familiar to you, it's because Peter opened his book with a very similar phrase. Chapter 1, verse 2 says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. So he bookends it here. He starts with that, ends with that. After the name Jesus, there's no sweeter word in all of the scriptures than grace. John Piper eloquently puts it this way, Grace is the greatest unused resource in all the world. It is the wealth of God's kindness, the riches of his mercy, the soothing ointment from his forgiveness, the free and undeserved, but lavishly offered hope of eternal life. Grace is what we crave when we are guilt-laden. Grace is what we must have when we come to die. Grace is our only ray of hope when the future darkens with storm clouds of fear. So how do we grow in God's grace, my friends? Peter has already told us in the second verse of his book. Grace is multiplied to us in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And where do we gain the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? In this book, in the Bible. In this book, we grow in the knowledge that God has a wonderful future plan for those who believe. 
In this book, we grow in the knowledge that all of our deepest longings will be satisfied in Jesus. In this book, we grow in the knowledge that death is a defeated enemy and sin will be no more. In this book, we grow in the knowledge that Jesus will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. In this book, we grow in the knowledge that all pain and frustration and ugliness will vanish when Jesus makes all things new. In this book, we will grow in the knowledge that there will be no more darkness as Jesus fills the new earth with his golden light. And in this book, we grow in the knowledge that no eye has seen and no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the glories that God has prepared for those who love him and believe in Jesus, his son. And as you read this book, you grow in the knowledge that you are loved. You are loved. You are loved. You are loved. Reminder. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, we're going to close with a reminder of God's love for us. Jesus ordained this. That's why we call it an ordinance of the church. He asked his original disciples to do this regularly as a reminder of what he had done for them. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, finish the verse, Christ died for us. As we celebrate the Lord's table, or what we sometimes call communion, we remember, we look back and remember what Jesus has done. The the elements represent two things, the broken body, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus on our behalf in our place. The grape juice represents his blood shed for us on the cross. We look back and we remember, but we also look forward. Because when Jesus took the cup, he said, I will not drink this cup again until I share it with you in the kingdom. And so when we take the Lord's table, we look backwards, but we also look forwards. We look backwards in remembrance, but we look forward in celebration. We look backwards to remember what Jesus has done for us. We look forward to remember he's coming again, no matter what the scoffers say. And we will not meet him as judge. Those of us who believe in him, we'll meet him as a friend. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so now as the worship team leads us in this closing song, would you stand with us? And as you're ready, sometime during the song, come to one of four stations. There'll be two here in the front, two in the back. If you are gluten-free, there's a gluten-free option Caroline has in the back. Just come and take these elements and remember, you are loved.